Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. But first, our guest was turfed from the BC Liberal Caucus last year by leader Kevin Falcon. Now he is seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party of BC. Nechako Lakes MLA John Rostad describes himself as pro-freedom, pro-truckers, anti-mandate. Now he joins us. Uh, good morning to you, John. Thanks for uh, being with us on a Monday morning. Good morning, Bruce. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, got to ask uh, this very first question. When you take a look at all the politicians uh, out there, you're not very woke, are you? Well, I would uh, I would hope that wouldn't be a word that would be used to describe me. Yes, for sure. <laughs> well, no. Uh, tell me about, uh, and you would describe yourself as pro-freedom, pro-truckers, anti-mandate. Uh, this is cutting out uh, a bit of a slice for you with the voters, I think. Uh, is it a big enough slice that you could actually uh, make a difference? Well, I think, uh, what I, first of all, what I'm trying to do uh, with the Conservative Party of BC is to build actually a broad-based coalition. And, you know, the people that have supported the freedom movement across this province really don't have a home. And I want them to be able to feel like they can be part of something that is grassroots and that can grow across the province. You know, in regards to mandates, that. Uh, the issue we have right now is we have a healthcare crisis, and we need every single person we can in our healthcare system being able to provide services. Every other province in the country has dropped their mandates and hired back their healthcare workers, and we're not doing that here. And that's something that I, you know, I think, quite frankly, we need to be able to do to help alleviate some of the pressure we have in our healthcare system. But is that priority number one for you, or are you seeing anything else that may be more of a priority for BC right now? Well, I tell you, there's, there's lots of things in BC that are priority, but when you have you know somebody come into your office and say it's going to take two to three years to get a hip replacement, but somebody who has a, a torn shoulder and is told they're going to have to wait 28 months to be able to get re- uh, surgery to repair it, that's unacceptable, and I think that should be unacceptable for anybody in this province. We need to be doing everything we can to improve our healthcare system, to improve the services. And uh, that's why, you know, I'm taking this stand. Now, if you end up uh, getting the leadership of the B.C. Conservatives, you would be the leader from the interior. You take a look at the other leaders. Uh, they're from uh, the southwest corner of the province. Uh, that's not you. You uh, bring some different ideas, of course. And I've said this before. Quite often, what we see down in cities like Victoria and Vancouver, that's not really the entire province. How would you be any different uh, in that sort of light? Well, lots of people make issues of the rural-urban divide or, you know, the southeast versus the northwest kind of thing uh, of our province. And I really look at it. When I travel around and talk to people, they all want the same thing. They want to be able to, you know, have a good quality of life. They need to want to be able to put food on the table. I mean, half the people in this province are struggling just to put food on the table. They want to have a light touch by government. Uh, they want to, of course, have services when they need it. But all of these things 
you have in common, whether you live in rural BC or whether you live in, in urban BC. You know, affordability is not just an issue uh, for the urban areas. It's right across this province. And so I'd rather look at the things that can help bring us together um, and bring us together under a, under a political banner that, quite frankly, that is trying to put together a coalition. The BC Liberals used to be a coalition in this province, but they're not a coalition party anymore. They're too focused uh, on, you know, what I would call, uh, you know, being woke. And I just think that uh, uh, there's, a, there's an appetite across the province for an, another option. Let's get real here. What happened between you and Kevin Falcon? Were, were you turfed because of uh, your views on climate change or was it something else? Well, I mean, I, I've often asked myself that same question, and, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of happy that they turfed me because it has freed me up uh, to be able to uh, to speak openly. But what it came down to, at least the, the reason and the issue that happened there, is there was a paper that the federal government put out called the uh, Farm Emissions Reduction Strategy, and it would propose to reduce nitrogen-based fertilizer by 30%, and reduce cattle herds by 30%, which would be devastating for the, econ- for the economy in my riding. So I wanted to speak out about this, and, and Mr. Falcon wanted me to parrot the party lines, um, you know, which is the which is standard for both the, the BC Liberals and the NDP. When I refused to do that, um, he hung up on me, and half an hour later I was kicked out of caucus. I think that probably, you know, we could have found a way to find some middle ground, but uh, that's because that's his leadership style, and that's the way he has handled his caucus, and you know, that, if that's what people in the province are looking for, that's fine. But I think, quite frankly, people are looking for something different than that. Okay, we're talking with John Rostad. His hat is now in the ring. Uh, end of May is going to be the uh, leadership vote for the B.C. Conservative Party. Um, if you end up being the leader of the B.C. Conservatives, what do you think is going to be your priority? Uh, is it going to be talking to British Columbians across the province, uh, going on tour? Where are you going to be spending your energies? You know, there's lots of important work that is being done in Victoria, uh, and I don't want to uh, take away from that importance of the work at the legislature. But in order to be able to build a grassroots party, I need to be out and about as much as I can across the province. And that's my plans. Um, I've already been touring, um, you know, in many corners of the province. Uh, I'm going to continue that. I'm going to continue coming back to communities and doing the work that's needed to be able to build a grassroots movement. And the response so far has been very positive. I've been very pleased with it. Last time I thought that the B.C. Conservatives had a chance of getting some uh, real solid uh, representation in the legislature, John Cummins was leader. And uh, he certainly had a profile as a member of parliament. Uh, But it's a tough, tough game. How do you get uh, another party to really get any sort of strength? Do you have the finances to do it, to fight a campaign? Well, certainly raising money is going to be a big issue, and it is, I think, for any political party, given the, the uh, way the, uh, the fundraising mechanisms are in place. But I, I look at it this way. The last time the Conservative Party elected uh, an MLA was probably in the 1970s, and the last time it formed government was 1927. So this is um, obviously a, a large task that's in front of me, but I think it's a doable one. And the reason why I think it's a doable one is because there is this hunger for change. People are tired of political parties operating in the shadows and providing spin and, you know, playing all the, the usual sort of games. Uh, people are looking for, you know, straight up representation, people that will just speak honestly and fight hard for their writings. And so that's what I hope to be able to provide. And, you know, I, I recognize it's a big task, 
But uh, given the response, I think we've got a good shot at uh, uh, building something very solid. And I think we're going to be able to elect a very surprising number of MLAs in, t- in 2024. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. We're talking with Nechaka Lakes MLA, John Rustad, who has thrown his hat into the leadership for the BC Conservative Party. That leadership vote, by the way, will take place uh, toward the end of May. He describes himself as pro-freedom, pro-trucker, anti-mandate. Also was a member of the BC Liberal cabinet before he was kicked out by Kevin Falcon way back in August, I guess. He's with us and we're going to go straight to your phone calls at 280-9898. James and White Rock, what's on your mind? Hi, I just want to say I'm very happy to see this conservative candidate that can actually gain some traction in this province. It's about time. I'm from Alberta, and I work in British Columbia, and I come from a ranching farming background, and I don't think that the people in the urban areas of British Columbia realize the amount of damage that their woke policies are going to be doing to themselves in the future when it comes to the farming and the ranching in rural areas. Okay, James, I appreciate the phone call. Uh, John, do we, we, people like myself down in the uh, lower mainland, really appreciate uh, some of the challenges uh, in the interior? Well, I think it, it's it's more than that. 40% of the, of the food that the world consumes today comes from nitrogen-based fertilizer. There was a great initiative uh, in, in 1970, way back then, called the, the Green Revolution, which actually was the introduction of, of uh, nitrogen-based fertilizer, as well as other things, and it dramatically improved our food production. So if you're talking about reducing food production, you're talking about you know, lots of people, millions, if not billions of people in this world, going without. Right now, there's 345 million people in the world that are facing uh, a severe food insecurity if you're talking reducing food production, what happens to them? I mean, they're, they're talking about people starving. And so, you know, in British Columbia, uh, we are blessed because of what we have. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see shortages. We'll certainly see much higher prices um, if, uh, if these policies come in place. And that's going to put a lot of stress on people, especially people that are already struggling to put food on the table. Good call. Rob in Surrey, what's on your mind? It just seems to me that uh, the Conservatives, if let's say they do get some traction, they're going to take away a certain percentage of votes that might otherwise have gone to the Liberals, just like with the NDP concerning the Green Party. So I think people really have to ask themselves what they want of the province. You should vote for whoever you feel best represents your interests. But I think we've got a very polarized province, and uh, I think people are going to have to think long and hard in terms of who they vote for in the next election. Uh, that's a good point, Rob. Uh, and that's another one with a uh, another party coming up. Are you going to be a vote splitter and uh, and the best friends of the NDP? Uh, is that going well, to be your uh, position there, John? You know, the, the BC Liberals uh, ran, ran a mess. Uh, back in the 40s, and that's when the Social Credit Party came up. And the argument back then was exactly the same. But then the Social Party came up, uh, formed government, and to govern this province well for 20-plus years. Um, and I see right now that the BC Liberals in the, is in the same situation, right? They run their course. They're no longer a coalition. They, quite frankly, um, you know, have a ton of baggage, including with the leader. Uh, it's time to build a new coalition in this province. And 
So I'm worried about the vote split because I think people will see uh, what we're trying to do. It's not about Conservatives or Liberals or NDP. It's about what's doing what's right and wrong for this province and building something that people can be proud of. Thanks for the call there, Rob. Susan in North Vancouver, what do you think? Uh, BC Conservatives, uh, do they have a chance? Not for me, they don't. I have wanted to ask the gentleman in one question only, please. I am immune compromised. I am very, very pleased that our province is making sure that our nurses are still vaccinated. I want to know what you will do for people like us and people going through cancer treatments. You can at least provide people like us with vaccinated nurses, then there is no problem. If not, then you haven't got a chance of me ever voting for you. Susan, very strong and uh, very pointed uh, phone call. John, uh, there are immune-compromised people that uh, rely on vaccinated uh, people in hospitals. That's their trust. Uh, What do you say to those people? Well, look, I mean, first of all, um, I know there's lots of people in this province that are really struggling with health care and uh, are in very challenging uh, situations. And I certainly, you know, do feel for them. Um, You know, I've I've gone through a lot of that myself in, in, in my own family. But what I would say is, is this, um, it's been over two years, well, two years now since people have had their first and second round of vaccination. That vaccination has already worn off. Um, there is plenty of people uh, out there that could be working in the system that are in the exact same situation as the nurses that we have today. Uh, and when somebody goes to the hospital and needs services, you know, whether it's emergency room services or, or otherwise, would they rather have somebody there who is taking all the precautions and is able to provide those services, or would you rather have an emergency room that happens to be closed and have to be diverted to some other facility? Okay, and Cliff rate, and Port rate. Moody, uh, you've been hearing many of the comments. What, what do you think about this? Uh, we lost Cliff. Uh, Lindsay, Lindsay in Vancouver, what do you think? Hey, how are you? Good. You've got my vote, sir. Thank you, Lindsay. (laughs) There you go. Short and sweet. Um, And I think that I don't know what to say about that. You got the vote. Got the vote. That's all he uh, he had to say. Um, You know, it's going to be interesting going ahead. Have you heard from anybody else that wants to join you that's got any profile as you uh, seek the leadership, John? Uh, there actually has been people right across this province uh, that have reached out to me and are very interested in being part of it and running. Um, people that uh, you know have careers in in like RCMP and healthcare and emergency room uh, that have expressed interest in wanting to run. It's really quite remarkable uh, the people stepping forward, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's going to be just a tremendous amount of work to build a field 93 candidates, but that's what our plan is going to be. Uh, but it's, you know, I'm not, I'm no stranger to doing uh, lots of hard work, and I plan on doing that right across this province. It'll be a lot of fun. Leadership vote is what, uh, May 28? Yes. The, uh, the process is, uh, um, the deadline for entry into the race is the, uh, the 28th of March, um, and the final vote is the 28th of May. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Hey, great to be with you on a beautiful, sunny Monday morning. You know, when it comes to economics, it basically boils down to supply and demand. We've all heard that. And when it comes to Vancouver's housing market, 
The word that is tossed around more and more is supply, supply, supply. But of course, there must be something more than just supply to that. And my next guest is somebody that's been talking about the other side of it, the demand side. And he knows what he's talking about because he has a huge, long background, successful background in urban planning and uh, and Vancouver's market and seen various different uh, stages of what's happened in Vancouver over the years. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the demand, which is what he is saying because he says investors just can't get enough of Vancouver. Arnie Wise is an urban planner and former developer and joins us now. Arnie, thanks so much for being with us. Yes, good morning. So when it comes to supply, 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 we've heard the same thing, and you you fix the supply problem, everything is going to be solved. Not what you're saying, is it? No. I, I mean, more supply is fine. Of course, we need more housing. But uh, we need the right kind of housing also. I mean, just building more supply to feed uh, investors who, who purchase 50% of all new condominiums in this province, that's astounding. I don't think we've ever had that kind of demand from the investor group. And when I say investors, I'm not talking about foreign investors particularly. It's it's everyone. Um We've had low interest rates for the past decade, and everybody's getting on the bandwagon of real estate, Um, not just uh, individuals who are buying real estate to secure their future, like ordinary mom-and-pop investors. We have private equity funds from Toronto and New York and London and Dubai and Shanghai, and we have residential equity investment trusts. REITs who buy up uh, rental housing. And then you have the usual speculators and flippers and home hoarders, people who who buy one or two or three homes. Um, that whole group is, is driving the demand and is driving the prices higher. And that's never happened before to, to this extent. You know, it's interesting because it has never happened before, and now we're into a different environment where I would argue many people really didn't think that interest rates would go back up. And, well, hey, they did. And yeah. uh, and they're starting to go back up. So now there are these portfolios of investments, meaning housing out there. Um, and is it the right housing? Is it the right investment mix if you look at it as – having a portfolio, do we have the right mix? Well, look, I mean, who are we building for? Are we building for the investors or are we building for first-time home buyers? When an investor buys a property, that's fine. I mean, you know, everyone's trying to make a living and trying to make uh, ends meet. But the investor, when he buys it, he's then re-renting it or reselling it so that there's a markup there. And sometimes there's two or three markups before it ever gets to uh, someone who's going to actually live in it. So it's like the investor group is wholesaling uh, housing. And that's, that's, that's unprecedented to this extent. And when you get 50% of, of homes bought by investors, that's ridiculous. I mean, you, you cannot have three markups on a home before... 
someone eventually lives in it. It used to be the builder builds, the, guy, the home buyer buys it and lives in it. End of story. But now you've got two or three people, middlemen, in between. And that jacks up the housing prices. Which brings an obvious question, Arnie Wise. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would bet dollars to donuts there isn't a single politician out there that would say, let's uh, build more housing for investors. Uh, but no, they would. <laughs> reality is, though, uh, and you're right, this 50% number is out there. And 50% are investment properties. Uh, So there's a disconnect. Are we not being honest with ourselves when it comes to the housing market? Well, I think the, uh, the easy answer is just build more supply. That's, that's, that's the low hanging fruit kind of political answer. But the, the problem lies with the land. It all starts with the value of the land. Um, when a when a, a city a, a municipality has the power to grant land use uh, p- uh, authority, it it can upzone a piece of land. So a piece of dirt, which is limited in supply, can be made valuable for free overnight with the rezoning. So that is a huge financial gift to a developer. Um, so the land value is baked into anything that is built on it at a later date. Uh, I, you know, we could go on about that, about how to how to address the the value of land, but that's a whole other discussion, which I don't know if you want to get into. Well, the but bottom line is, it still comes down to whether we're going to have affordability. And when we have people that really can't afford with professional jobs to live in the city that we're in, there's a problem. There's an issue. And it comes down to why can't they afford it? And who's buying these houses at that price? Is this ever going to be squared or do we have a model that just doesn't work? Well, at the moment, it doesn't work. And everything that the politicians have done, and I don't, there's no ideological um, idea here, the full range of politicians from left, right, and center, they've been tinkering with different ways of trying to resolve the housing affordability crisis for the last five years, 10 years, and nothing has worked because even though you know interest rates now have gone up, so housing prices have gone down, but the affordability is worse than ever because it costs more to carry a mortgage, even though the price is high. The price is lower, so that the net result is that it's it's more expensive to carry a house, to own a house, or even to rent a house. Because when you have uh, a housing affordability on the purchase side, people can't afford to buy. Home buyers then become renters because they can't buy. So of course now you have a large pool of renters who are who are driving up the rental prices. So the entire housing market, both purchase and rental, is now completely unaffordable for, as you say, for employment incomes, for people, even for people making $100,000 in mid-career, they can't afford to buy a home without without mom and pop, really. Or no, some it other used to be the conversation was a teacher in Vancouver could not afford a home in Vancouver. Now we're extending that out to uh, other professions that uh, pay a yeah. lot more, your lawyers and your doctors. And yeah. if you go based on those old things that we grew up with, 
meaning our incomes uh, being a portion of uh, uh, of that going into buying a home, it doesn't work. It's not a formula that does work. It doesn't work, and it's also a societal problem. I don't mean just an economic problem. Uh, people who can't live here end up moving to uh, outer uh, smaller municipalities out of town and they have to commute and if they have to commute you have to build highways and you have to build heavy expensive rapid transit to move them around so that's 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 the economic problem but the societal problem is a city is boring without a whole mix of incomes a whole mix of different kinds of people immigrants cultures that's what makes a city great you can't just have a rich enclave of people who are who, who make a lot of money or investors, what have you. Uh, it's a boring city. Nobody wants to visit, and it's, uh, it's no fun. And it is. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. You know, a terrible story developing out of Nashville, Tennessee. There are three children dead in another school shooting, this one at a private Christian school in Nashville. Details still coming in. That's just happened in the last hour, and we'll certainly be hearing more about that throughout the day. But uh, three children dead and multiple others injured in that school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. Before the break, we were talking about housing in Vancouver and about economics, about supply and demand, and about, you know, it's not just supply, it is also demand, and the demand continues to be high. Well, in the Globe and Mail, a longtime Vancouver journalist, uh, Carrie Gold, has written about this in her piece, taking a look at the slice of the market here in Vancouver which includes the mega-rich buying mega-houses, still healthy. Carrie Gold joins me now. Carrie, thanks for being with us. And I guess this is one side of the market that really isn't suffering, is it? No, it seems that this side of the market is out there shopping for deals, according to the realtors I interviewed. Now, what is a mega-house, according to uh where you started looking into uh, this side of the market. What are we talking about? Well, the one that I uh, cited in the story was on Point Grey Road. And anything on Point Grey Road, especially on the north side facing the water, they don't come up too often, so they're going to sell at a premium. And that seller did extremely well when they sold that property for $24 million, uh, which is actually higher than the assessed value. So they did quite well. And um, that would be definitely one of our mega properties. It's down the road from Chip Wilson's house, which I think is assessed at $74 million right now, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And it's so surprising because quite often we talk about the housing market. Of course, this is an outlier on the extreme, but very interesting because we're not seeing any dip in those prices. Or did we see a dip? I think there has been. I think these people are looking for deals because... There was one in West Vancouver recently that sold for, I think, a million dollars below the asking price. So that sold for, I don't know, maybe seven million versus eight million, something like that. So in that world, they are, there are adjustments being made. And I do think that there are more uh, properties over 10 million coming online. So I think that there will be deals. And these aren't people who are necessarily planning to live in the home. So a lot of people invest and as we know from the statistics, one in five property owners uh, are also owners, owners of investment properties. And so these could be investments. They could be selling investment properties to buy 
you know, better ones, ones that they feel will make more money in the long term. Um, yeah, so there's just some, there's some movement happening that way. These people don't, they're not necessarily affected by interest rates directly, you know, when it comes to real estate. They probably have uh, uh, some freed up cash to spend. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there is this huge disparity in the city. We have some extremely wealthy people who, as the realtor in my story said, are walking around with $20 million in their pockets. There's, there's a lot of those people. And uh, then we've got people who don't uh, make a lot of money. We are not a very wealthy city when it comes to household income. And yet we've got the third highest, uh, most expensive real estate in North America uh, according to census data. We're right behind San Francisco and the Bay Area, and yet our incomes are very low. And uh, as you point out, these are many times people that have you know, house sitters, I guess. Uh, and to be a house sitter in one of these homes must be interesting. But uh, <laughs> yeah. they have several homes. So they may have a home on the Mediterranean, may have a home uh, in Puerto Vallarta, and uh, this is the Vancouver property. What is it about Vancouver that puts you on the map for that kind of segment of the market? Um, I think that, uh, well, for one thing, it's a good investment. If you buy here, uh, you you do have the potential to make a lot of money off your property. I mean, the wealthy people I've interviewed or heard about, they don't tend to sell things as much. Like, they tend to hold things. Uh, so if you just wait, you can actually make a pretty decent return. You build a lot of equity. So I think there's that that's very attractive, especially for uh, people with foreign money who uh, have better incomes that they're earning elsewhere. Um, I think also, well, it is just a nice city. People do love coming here. And I've interviewed wealthy people, like one man lived in the sh- had a place in the Shangri-La, and it was uh, basically just a getaway when he wanted to ski in Whistler, but he, his main home was in Monaco, and he had another home in San Diego. Are these um, all oceanfront yeah. ones uh, in Vancouver that we're talking about? So kind of like your Point Grey or in West Vancouver, uh, uh, if you just go west of Ambleside or uh, or some, are there other properties up around the over $20 million mark that aren't oceanfront? Uh, let me see. I think most of them would have ocean views at least, right? I think that that, that makes it truly, you know, desirable. I think, you know, there used to be that expression, million dollar view. Well, that, that doesn't get you much. That would be an alley. <laughs> but now... It has to be maybe a maybe it's a twenty million dollar view. Yeah, I think it would be the ocean, for sure. Are I, these I would guess. and are they the big names or are they people that we don't know about, have never heard of, that are buying the homes? Yeah, there's a lot of people we have no idea who they are. Actually, there was a lot of secrecy around this this story. You know, realtors uh, they're terrified of uh, talking about the details. Um, they often sign non disclosure agreements. Uh, this segment of the market is incredibly private. And maybe it's because they're worried about security issues. Maybe it's because they're famous. Um, who knows? But uh, And, you know, some of it, the owners or sellers on title, they're numbered companies. And so it's hard to know who's You'll behind them. You'll never know. You'll never know. This is a very, <laughs> yeah, this, it's a secretive market, that's for sure. Thanks for being with us on your Monday morning. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. A disturbing, terrible story. Another school shooting out of Nashville, Tennessee. 
The latest, uh, three children and three adults known to be dead. That number could go up. Many others are still in hospital. There is word that the shooter in this case was a female. Whether that person is a uh, under the age of majority, I guess, or, or an adult remains to be seen. There's no detail on that, but there is word that the shooter in this case at the school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, was a woman. And again, three children, three adults dead, and this happening at a private Christian school in Nashville, and uh, the shooter, the shooter themselves, is uh, is dead. Unfortunate story, and there will be more details coming out, of course, throughout the day. Tomorrow is Federal Budget Day, and at a time when we're all paying more for various things in our lives, not the least of which is food. Inflation still very high. We're looking at possibly even more taxes coming out. Well, that's a strong possibility. Is the juice worth the squeeze, as they like to say? Are we going to be getting enough in return? Well, the group that takes a look at this from a taxpayer's perspective is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And the federal director is Franco Terrazano. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Well, tomorrow I guess it's off to the lockup. Are you going to be in it? I sure will. And what are you expecting or fearing at this point? Well, you know, I don't got that crystal ball, but here's what we want. Uh, I mean, two priorities, which I think should be, should hopefully have been simple for the government to live up to. It's uh, make life a little bit more affordable for Canadians and make the budget process a little bit more fair for taxpayers. Two ways to do that is, number one, stop the tax hike. Number two, stop the raise that members of Parliament are giving themselves. Because on April 1, just in a couple days, we've got the carbon tax going up, alcohol taxes going up, and Member of Parliament pay also going up. For those that don't know, what, uh, what is a pay now for just an MP, just a backbencher? Oh, they're doing quite well. you got a backbench Member of Parliament making $189,500. That's their uh, base salary. Mr. Trudeau, our prime minister, makes $379,000. Now, April 1's pay raise is going to be an extra $5,100 for your backbencher, all the way up to an extra $10,200 for Mr. Trudeau. But remember, folks, this isn't the first pay raise that they've given themselves since the pandemic. This will be the fourth pay raise that they've given themselves since the early days of the pandemic back in 2020. Remuneration for politicians is always one of those things that's uh, contentious, kind of sexy as a topic. But uh, when you start to look at that sort of money, we're getting beyond yeah. what uh, what uh, many professionals would be making. For a member of parliament, even a new member of parliament, that's a pretty good coin. Um, but that's only part of the equation, isn't it? We also have when they're out, voted out, or retire on their own uh their own decision, uh, they get that gold-plated pension, don't they? Oh, they sure do. And if they're not getting a pension, they're getting a severance. But here's the thing. Canadians overwhelmingly oppose the upcoming pay raise, okay? We just released, released a Leger poll today that we commissioned. Shows, surprise, surprise, four out of five Canadians are against the MP pay raise. So here's the thing. Stopping a pay raise should not be rocket science, especially when the vast majority of Canadians oppose it. But we saw it done in the past. Back in 2010 to 2013, 
The federal government stopped the pay raises in response to the 08-09 recession. Uh, BC, you guys just recently froze MLA salaries in Nova Scotia. Premier Tim Houston, he recalled the legislature to stop the pay raise, and then he cut his own pay by $11,000. Now, what we should have seen from the federal government is something we saw in New Zealand. Almost immediately when the pandemic struck New Zealand, their prime minister at the time, she took a 20% pay cut. Ministers took a 20% pay cut. Even top bureaucrats took a 20% pay cut because they wanted to show solidarity with the struggling taxpayers who may have lost their job, taken a cut, maybe even lost their business, those struggling taxpayers who are paying their salaries. We're talking with Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in advance of tomorrow's federal budget. Uh, Franco, uh, there will be people out there that say, oh, that's great, you can attack an MP's salary, but uh, how do you expect to get good people? I love that term, good people. Good people (laughs) running for the job. And I think what they often refer to is uh, those with backgrounds, uh, maybe in law or in medicine or things like that. Um, Do we need that pay in order to attract the best and the brightest to the job? (laughs) Well, we've been giving them raises every year for about a decade. So how many raises? So if you're worried about the talent over there in Ottawa, how many raises do we have to give them until the talent improves? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are supposed to be representing our constituents or or our people. And what I think is really hurting so many Canadians was what has happened when people were losing their jobs. At the very least, our politicians should not have given themselves a raise. Right. Fast forward to today when you have Canadians who are wondering, uh, can I afford the jug of milk? Or can I afford the package of ground beef? Uh, And not a good time for members of Parliament to be giving themselves raises. But even more to the point, this isn't just about leadership. This isn't just about symbolism. We have a massive deficit in Ottawa. The PBO thinks it could be $43 billion next year. Well, they have to find savings. But it's going to be kind of hard for a member of Parliament to go to the bureaucracy and ask them to find savings when they've been busy gobbling up pay raise after pay raise after pay raise. But deficits don't matter when you're dealing with a pandemic. Isn't that the wisdom? Well, no, deficits absolutely do matter, right? Because that's what's fueling a lot of this inflation. I mean, what happened essentially is you had the Bank of Canada print $300 billion, largely out of thin air, largely buying government of Canada debt, and it dropped that into the economy that had two years of revolving lockdown, right? It's one thing to prioritize spending, but it's another thing to just spend more money on everything forever And that's what the government has done, and that's one of the factors driving inflation. Okay, the other one, Franco, let's talk about April 1st uh, this year. Um, Not coming up uh, based on any decision for the next budget, tomorrow's budget, but we're seeing uh, the cost of of everything related to carbon taxes going up, right? Well, that's absolutely correct, right? The price of gas, or the the cost of the carbon tax of gasoline will hit 14 cents a litre. Of gas, um, it'll hit about 12 cents per cubic meter of natural gas, which means more expensive to fuel up your car on the way to work. It means more expensive to keep your homes warm, but also it's going to mean higher grocery prices. And the reason that is is because the more that farmers have to pay in taxes, the more that Canadians have to pay at the grocery store. The more costs that are layered onto truckers, again, the more that Canadians will have to pay at the grocery store. So the carbon tax is a very difficult tax to stomach because it increased the cost of necessities, like driving to work or keep, keeping your um, home heated. But then it also affects grocery prices, and it's a very bad time for the government to be raising grocery prices through higher taxes at the moment.
But Franco, aren't you uh, pro environment? Yeah, I think I think every Canadian is. I think every Canadian is. I mean, BC, you guys have had the highest carbon tax in Canada for years. Emissions continue to go up. I think we have to look at what uh, our peer countries are doing. And while Canada continued to raise taxes during the pandemic and as inflation took off, we saw 51 other national governments cut taxes, more than half of G7 and G20 countries, two-thirds of OECD countries. A number of our peers cut gas taxes. Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, New Zealand, you had Italy, you had uh, India, um, you had the United Kingdom, you had many provinces and many states that cut gas taxes while Ottawa raised gas taxes.